0: Hello, and welcome to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, part of the 2017 National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge. I'm your host, Dr. Mehul Dalal, and today we're going to be talking about job crafting with our guest expert, Amy Resneski from the Yale School of Management. We're going to be diving into a fascinating topic job crafting. If you're interested in how your employees and you yourself really relate to your work and how that ties into important concepts around the meaning of work and work identity, listen on. We're going to get practical, too. If you don't like your job, and let's be honest, there are some of you out there that do not, uh, we're going to walk through a theory-based approach to help you change the job you're in, or at least some important aspects of it. I'm going to go on the record and say that I love my job, but there are certainly days that I might be questioning that. I'll leave it there. Our guest, Dr. Amy Resdesky, is a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management. She has a track record of research that is rigorous, innovative, and applicable. In addition to top academic journals, her work frequently appears in the popular press, including Forbes, Time, Business Week, the Harvard Business Review, and is referenced in influential popular books. I heard Amy's work featured on an NPR podcast and immediately thought of its potential relevance to our work in public health. We happened to be previously acquainted, and I live in the same neighborhood, so I flagged her down at our local market to ask if she would be interested in participating in this initiative. And a few emails later, she graciously agreed to participate. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation and sharing with you some of the insights from her important work. Amy, is there anything else you want to add to that introduction?
1: No, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the
0: invitation. Great, thank you for coming on the show. So I thought it might be helpful to set the stage of what we're talking about with a case example to illustrate the types of concepts that we're gonna cover.
1: Sure, and the case example that I'm thinking of is actually quite relevant to a healthcare context because it comes from research I've done with colleagues of mine at the University of Michigan, Jane Dutton and Goliath, DeBeba, in which we were studying people who work on hospital cleaning staff units in a hospital. So these are folks who go around and clean patient rooms, public areas, nurses stations, and the like. And the study was ostensibly focused on how is it that people who do these jobs make meaning of the work that they're in. And one thing we noticed in our data was that the kinds of things people described as being part of the job varied a lot across the sample. And it Mm -hmm. varied in ways that we didn't understand based on what their job description was. And this started us down the the road, if you will, of trying to understand what it is that people do, in this case what they were doing, was actually doing a very different job in some cases than the one that they had been hired by the organization to fill and in our efforts to understand sort of what it was that might be going on we realized that though they were given the same job description and tasked with the same kinds of things to be doing there were cleaning staff members who were in addition to cleaning the patient rooms and so on were engaging in actually a fair amount of patient care where they were spending time with patients they were getting them things that they needed they were giving them water and food and so on and in some cases getting involved with caring for or supporting the families as as well. In addition, some of the cleaning staff members were doing things that involved building much more robust relationships with nurses and with clerks so that they could be looped in on what was happening with particular patient situations so that they could time the cleaning of the space and so on in ways that were highly sensitive to the patient. And so this was in quite stark contrast from the rest of the cleaning staff members in the sample who were working very hard, were very diligent individuals. I want to be very clear about that, but were doing exactly what was in the job description. And we were not deviating from the job as it had been built by the managerial individuals, sort of in the hospital, who had written the job descriptions and were tasked with monitoring that this work was getting done.
0: That's interesting. So, there's a group of people or a subset of people that really went outside of the boundaries of what maybe their official written job description was. And I know in this case it applies to to hospital cleaning staff, which offers such a kind of a vivid example because there's you know, patient care activities as being the main purpose of, of a hospital. What kind of insights did you draw from that?
1: Sure. So the more we dug into the data and to the literature to try to figure out what was it that was happening, because... A remarkable thing about this context is that the cleaning staff members in this particular hospital were forbidden, actually, from interacting with patients and visitors and were told that if a request was made of them, they should respond to the request. But that they should not be interacting with or getting in any way sort of involved in relationships, conversations, and so on with the people who were there or their families. And so in figuring out, well, why might it be the case that people would actually risk getting into trouble to do this, we delved into the literature, we delved into the transcripts of the data we had collected, and realized we thought it had a lot to do with the ways in which people want to exert control over the work that they are doing, the ways in which people want to have a, a sense of sort of positive identity about kind of mm-hmm. who they are in that context, their desire to be related to or interacting with sort of others in ways that are positive in ways that may help them experience the meaning of their work differently. And so in subsequent work that we've written up after having done this study, our, our theoretical frame is that part of the reason why people do this is it helps to transform what the experience of the work is like. And it's, it's a practice that we've come to call job crafting.
0: Okay. Yeah. Hopefully that's kind of the main topic we're going to cover today. And again, I really like that example because it is hospital cleaning staff. And often those who are not involved directly in that work wonder about, you know, how those staff are seeing their work. And I, I think at this point it might be helpful to walk through some of the definitions. You talk about job crafting. I think you referenced meaning of work and I think a closely related concept around work identity. If you could talk us through some of those definitions, I think that'll help set the stage for the next part of the conversation.
1: Sure. So I'll walk through definition of the meaning of work first. So uh, on the one hand, it's quite clear sort of what that would mean. On the other hand, it's a very fuzzy concept, and that's been true in the research literature as well. The way that I think of it is, you know, the meaning of work is what it is that work signifies to a person, or what role does it play in the context of their life. And so you could imagine the same exact job could be for one person, the meaning of that work is that it's just a paycheck versus it's a way to serve others versus that same work is a path to something else that may involve sort of promotions or things like this versus the work perhaps, the meaning of that work is that the work sort of symbolizes an end in and of itself, that the work is akin to play or something like this. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we think about meaning how we think about work identity, again, sort of that's our understanding of who we are in our jobs. Do we think of ourselves as a helper or an expert or a teacher or a fixer? Sort of how is it that we narrate to ourselves who we think we are in the context of that work and that organization? Obviously, this matters quite a bit because it's it influences how people think of, of who they are sort of more generally, but it also is likely to influence the ways in which they interact with others at work, how they hope mm. others will see them and treat them. Again, something that could be made more malleable in crafting one's job.
0: So before we get to job crafting, I think I want to just hang on that point for a little while, the work identity piece and relate it back to your example. So how were these, I mean, I think you probably mentioned a little bit, of it. how were these the cleaning staff that... Saw their work as much more integrated with the care team, and even willing to risk a potential reprimand. Do you have a sense of how they were actually viewing their work uh, in terms of the yeah. work identity piece?
1: Yeah. So we got an interesting clue from one of the questions that we asked, which had to do with just asking, "What is your role here? What is your job at the hospital?" And amongst the cleaning staff members who were not engaging in this kind of job crafting, they were much more likely to tell us their official job title Mm. at the hospital. Whereas in this group of people who were crafting the job in various ways, they were more likely to say things like, I'm an ambassador for the hospital, or in the most extreme case, I'm a healer. And when we asked more about this, were very clear that though they worked in a particular job in the organization, they saw the kinds of things that they were involved in there as involving, as you said, sort of much more than just what was in that job description and things that moved into the area of helping to heal others or act as an ambassador for the hospital in the community amongst all the people who come through the doors.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Now, I'm trying to kind of like draw the connection up from that kind of level of work to some of our more information economy work or uh, government service work. It would be so interesting to ask that question of folks who work in areas like public health or other public sector work. I don't think it's something that gets discussed very often. I feel like there's an implicit assumption around, you know, people are in it for the mission because they care about this particular topic, but beneath the surface.
1: Yes. I think that's a fabulous point because I would imagine if people working in this field are like folks that we've studied in a variety of occupations and organizations that there may be some who you know would describe exactly the same kind of work as being about ensuring or bolstering sort of the health of the entire country or of vulnerable yeah. communities versus another person saying. I write reports and go to meetings, yep. and that's, you know, that's kind of the job, and where you could sort of imagine that happening in a real estate firm or a law firm or a public health organization. Yep. Uh, and so the way that people connect to how they frame the meaning and what that's likely to then unleash and how it is they do the work is likely to vary by
0: those very kinds of things. Yeah, no, I think the first discussion around the meaning of work is so important, and I think it might be difficult for a supervisor to ask directly to a subordinate what their meaning of work is, but it might be something that you can catch glimpses of during the course of how you interact with your team and the folks that report to you. I want to get to this, you know, kind of the formal definition, at least your definition of job crafting, because I think it reveals so much in terms of insights on how people view their work. So I, do you mind spending a little time explaining that? Sure.
1: So job crafting, as we've come to sort of define it and write about it, we would define it as the ways in which people redefine the boundaries of their jobs. And so something that's important to point out about this is it's not just changing how people think about the work that they're doing. So they're reframing in some sense, cognitively, the same job as being, you know, I'm not just stacking bricks, I'm building a cathedral or, you know, something like this. Yeah. But it's actually about the, the changes that people make to how they execute the job. And this is done by the individual employee. It's not something that's shaped by or, or dictated by their managers or their supervisors. And it involves three different kinds of practices. So the first is changing the boundaries of the tasks that they're doing. So that could be sort of adding in sort of more tasks into the job. It could be also drawing that boundary back and dropping some of the tasks or spending less time on certain tasks in the job or changing how those tasks are engaged, how much focus they get when they're happening sort of in the course of doing the job and so on. So to go back to the hospital cleaning example, task crafting in that particular context had to do with, again, sort of adding in, if you will, sort of elements of patient care to a job description that was already quite mm. um, defined. The second form of crafting that we found in a number of contexts is what we call relational crafting, which is you know, essentially changing the ways in which people engage in interactions and relationships with others, where they're either, again, sort of expanding the boundary, sort of interacting more with certain individuals or types or groups of individuals, changing the nature of those relationships or interactions, mm. or again, sort of pulling back and limiting the interactions and relationships that they have with others in ways that, again, sort of shape how they think about the meaning of their work mm-hmm. and how they see their identity in the work. And then the final, the third and final form of crafting that we see is, is a bit more abstract, if you will, and it's something we call cognitive crafting, which is changing the way in which you think about what it is that um, the job Sort of entails. How is it that your perceptions of the work sort of shift? So a nice example would be for the people who see their work as being, I clean this many patient rooms a day and this many sort of nurses stations and so on, and that's that's sort of the job. Versus, I'm an ambassador for the organization. That. Uh, again, sort of speaks to a very different way of understanding what it is that the person is doing there. And our argument is that this is likely to be related to the kinds of task and relational crafting that people would be undertaking as well.
0: I see. So the cognitive is much more sort of an internal change in perspective or how they get a better sense of what that mm-hmm. is. Is that, would that be yeah. a right way to characterize it?
1: That it would be. So, you know, you could imagine, so a, a role in most organizations now it has to do with information technology and IT support and so on. And you could imagine someone in a, in a role like that sort of thinking about sort of in, in terms of, again, their cognitive frame on the job as being yeah. they're a firefighter, right? They, they just deal with problems and calls and system issues all day long, and they're maybe you know, could see that as constantly trying to save people from their own mistakes, you know, with their systems, versus seeing that same exact role as being a teacher, where every interaction mm-hmm. they have with someone who's coming to the help desk or calling in or what have you is an opportunity to teach someone why something happened in the way that it did uh-huh. so that they can mm-hmm. understand better the kinds of systems they interact with. And so it's a meaningful sort of switch, right, in the the way in which one might cognitively craft that job. But you can already see the implications it would have for how people would then engage others. Yeah. In their interactions in the work, how they would think about the tasks that were or weren't sort of part yeah. of their focus at work and so on.
0: So I think we're kind of the practical implications of this in the second part of the show, but this is so interesting. It seems like at this point it'd be important to con- I know you referenced this earlier that it's not something that the manager definitely has leverage or control over, but it seems like at this point it might be helpful to, to contrast what you're talking about with job crafting with some more centric models around job design again working in a bureaucratic structure there's there's a myriad of assumptions many of them deeply seated many of them implicit about the role of managers and how much leverage and what kind of leverage they have over employee activity so i don't know if you want to t- comment on that or talk a little bit about that sure so i think you know traditionally
1: there's been a kind of a push and pull between you know whose whose role is it to determine what the content and the focus of any particular job might be. Typically, it's been designed by the organization, it's been created by managers, and certainly monitored and supported by managers. And there's a long tradition in the field that I'm in around how do we design jobs that are more motivating, more engaging, mm-hmm. more interesting for people. The contrast with job crafting is that's a one-size-fits-all model, right, of what does a manager or a department thinks would be kind of an appropriate amount of work or type of work or focus yeah. of work. Job crafting is really about flipping the arrow and pushing this from the bottom up so that it's the individual individual. Employee who's in a position to make some decisions, you know, obviously within boundaries yeah. of how it is they do, you know, potentially have the chance to move around a bit, how it is that they are engaging in the tasks and the interactions that comprise the job.
0: I agree with that statement. There's a push and pull that you reference it occurring in the academic literature. I also feel like that sort of push and pull is also in practice as well, where we talk about, you know, innovation has to rise from above the most important employees are the line level employees, but but then also this expectation that managers are gonna have a lot of control over over what happens. So I think that tension definitely exists in practice as well. Yeah. What are the big thrusts of our profession in the chronic disease prevention public health arena over the last 5 years is around exploring and implementing ways we can collaborate better with each other within our own you know disease specific areas or risk factor areas like tobacco control and heart disease prevention and also beyond that collaborating more with other sectors that have bearing and influence over the health of the populations a, a pretty prime example of that is a transportation sector where you can potentially see the the pretty profound implications on how streets are designed and how transportation is envisioned can have on physical things such as physical activity, opportunities, and things like that. Uh, I had a Mm -hmm. really interesting conversation with the director of the Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion as part of this podcast series, Dr. Ursula Bauer, and we really talked about, you know, parsing the different ways we can collaborate And obviously, there's a lot of back and forth with that as well. You know, we often run into resistance when we're trying to push to collaborate, either sort of these are kind of like yellow flags or red flags that go in our own activities or among our employees when we're being asked to do things to collaborate more with other sectors or other people. And I'm wondering if part of that resistance is this idea that I think you raised in at least maybe not today during our conversation, but I did see some of the materials that you sent and we'll post up on the link, this idea that collaborating may increase people's task interdependence meaning that they'll be relying on other people more for information to get their specific job done and which in yeah. turn might curtail their autonomy around how they can craft their job and you can react to that if you'd like i just want to offer that as observation as something to flag as a potential reason yeah. collaboration isn't happening
1: Yes. I do think, you know, one of the things we theorize is that the greater someone's interdependence in their work role, the less likely it is that they'll perceive sort of opportunities to craft their job because their task flow, their interactions and relationships and so on that have to be carried out as part of doing the work may be more contingent on others' timing and and work input and so on. And so inviting more interdependence by collaborating, I think, you know, the necessary evil of that, right, is that you're increasing your interdependence and maybe limiting your degrees of freedom from the point of view of being able to craft. However, you could also think about that very collaboration as being a form of job crafting, right? Reaching across an organization or an aisle or an occupation category or something to begin to work with someone on an interesting and cool idea could in and of itself be a form of job crafting Mm. that
0: helps people express or rewrite how they think about their work identity. So we covered a lot of topics in the first half around uh, the meaning of work, work identity, and really getting into a formal definition around job crafting and what we're talking about with that. And in the second part of the show, we're going to get into some practical tips and strategies on how we're actually going to apply some of this stuff. So I'm looking forward to that part of the conversation for us to get some ideas and perspective on how to make our own jobs better and help our employees make their jobs better. So we'll be back after the break.
2: Hi, this is Dr. Mayhul Dalal with a quick break here. I know in the day-to-day bustle of work, it's not easy to study and apply leadership best practices. I also know that leadership is not about a particular individual who happens to be in a supervisory position. It's about working together to identify and cultivate these skills and capacities in each other and at all levels of the organization. Leadership skills should be foundational to all public health professionals as our field confronts change both from within and without. It's my hope that this year's National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge, Learn, Lead, and Thrive, will draw attention to best practices, industry-leading thinking, and most importantly, practical advice on how to implement these concepts and techniques in our daily work. Please tune in to other episodes of this podcast where I talk with leading experts tackling important questions around professional development, succession planning, managing up, job satisfaction, and more. We've lined up exciting conversations with folks, like Dr. Ursula Bauer, Dr. Gene Alonji, Dr. Mark Lipton, Professor of Management at the New School, Drs. Amy Rizniewski and David Berg, both professors at Yale, and Dr. Ross Brownson of Washington University. To access the podcast, go to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge webpage found at chronicdisease.org, where you'll also find links and resources related to this and other podcasts in this series. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, welcome back. Now we're going to switch gears and talk about how job crafting, the job crafting framework to help you assess and improve your own work and encourage others to do similarly. We talked a lot about the theory of the concepts in the first half. And Amy, you've written not just about the theory and the concepts, but some practical advice for folks as employees to engage in their own job crafting and using this concept to empower them to to take control of how they envision their own jobs, particularly if they're not satisfied in their jobs and i'll just name those strategies and then maybe we can walk through each one with a summary and an example so the first strategy is that you offer is optimizing the job you have the second is revision the relational landscape of the work number three is cue it up and number four is aspirational job crafting so let's start with the first one optimize the job you have
1: Sounds great. So the first strategy that I've outlined in some of the work I've written up about this has to do with taking the job that you're already in and looking really closely at how it is you're spending your time, where it is that you might have opportunities to take more control over what it is that you're doing or how much time you're spending on various aspects of of the work so that you can do a more mindful job of aligning your own values, strengths, passions, what it is that you most hope to get from work with how it is and who it is um, you're spending your time with in doing that. One of the things that has struck me in conversations with people about job crafting is the extent to which it's possible to take a job that's not necessarily ideal, but by doing the things we're responsible for the to the organization, right, in the course of doing our work, but yep. still taking the freedoms that we have to spend a little bit more time, say, with clients or on Data analysis, or with particular colleagues, and so on, can really be transformative from the point of view of what the experience of the work is like.
0: Okay, do you have any kind of examples offhand of how that might might work?
1: Of the the optimizing of the job. Yeah, you the have, optimizing. Well? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll give an example. You can imagine someone who is, we'll call her Mary, who's working in an organization where corporate writing and, and sort of doing sort of official internal writing for internal and external consumption is sort of part of the job, but where the hope is that, you know, there would be maybe more opportunities to interact with and sort of learn about the expertise areas in the organization. Well, you know, one way that that could be done is by figuring out, well, In writing these pieces, I could sort of make it part of the writing of the pieces to have to talk with people inside and outside of the organization to Mm -hmm. learn more about the studies on which these data come from or, you know, what have you, in ways that can really transform feeling maybe more like a passive digester and sort of writer of, of things versus, you know, something more akin to like an investigative reporter who's much more engaged in the data that comprise, again, the kind of writing that's happening.
0: Yeah, oh, well, that's actually a great example, and it relates really well to some of the work that we do in public health. So it's very easy to kind of craft your job down into a pretty siloed, sit at your desk type of activity, depending on your duties. But that same job could be reenvisioned in in a pretty similar manner to the way you described. Is that to you know to look outside and understand and investigate the context of what you're doing a little bit more? And I think that that could be definitely useful in many cases. So let's move on to the second one, the the revisioning the relational landscape of the work.
1: Okay. So this particular strategy has much more to do with who it is we're spending our time with in the context of our work and how, sort of what that time Mm -hmm. is like. And, you know, I would argue that most of us have interactions and relationships in our work that range from things that are absolutely life-giving interactions <laughs> and in, in relationships to those yep. that, you know, maybe I could best describe them as not life-giving in from the point of view of being sort of energizing colleagues or clients or whoever they may be, right? And, yep. and a lot of often what that has to do with is being with people who, again, sort of energize us, who validate and reinforce our sense of who we think we are in this work, yep. who reinforce our sense of how it is we think we are making meaning sort of, of the work, and, you know, ways in which you can revision the relational landscape would be taking any and every opportunity you have to spend more time with the people who affirm your sense of why it is that you're there in the first place, what it is that you're hoping to accomplish in this work, and trying to either minimize or even change the mode of the contact mm-hmm. that you have with others. So maybe you can turn a meeting into, well, why don't we just brief each other by email? Or yeah. why don't we just call each other if we have questions, right? So people have all kinds of ways of, of resolving sort of broken or unpleasant sort of interdependence. And being proactive about that in a way that still allows you to get your job done is something that I think can make a big difference.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fascinating insight. And now, as you mentioned it, explain it, I'm thinking of examples that's happening, you know, right now in our office. So, that's an important insight and can certainly make a difference in terms of job satisfaction. Let's move on to the third one, Cue It Up.
1: Cue It Up is essentially kind of a two-way strategy where it would be very helpful to think about what are the kinds of tasks and or or interactions that comprise the flow of, say, a workday that are highly energizing, that you look forward to, that you wish you had more of, versus the ones perhaps that you dread that maybe feel a bit like taking your medicine before you're able to, you know, get <laughs> right. into other things. And what we've found is some people prefer to start their day with the most energizing, most positive, most meaningful sort of aspects of their work as right. a way of sort of kick them, you know, either in the day or in the week or in the quarter in a way that really, again, sort of gives them a sense of of focus and energy and meaning, you could also do the opposite, which is you save those things up as a reward so that once you've slogged through a draft of a budget or which I should be careful. Some people, that is the treat, right? But (laughs) I'll use myself as an example. Grading, right, as something that, you know, is very important, not necessarily the most enjoyable thing, that by getting through some amount of grading, that then I can sort of go have a conversation with a colleague about a new study or something like this. And so queuing up the day in ways, again, where you're being careful about managing the flow of tasks and interactions so that you are having a, a better experience is something that we often
0: don't do. Yeah, that's so obvious, but but important. Uh, a lot of us feel we may not have control over what comes at us throughout the day, but I think we probably have more control than we think, and especially in public sector work and information knowledge work that we're engaging in, and even managerial level tests where we think we have to put out fires all the time. I, I think I've, you know, sort of offer another personal example is uh, I think I, this is one of the places where I think I might have crafted things to some effect where I used to just sort of leave some white space open on my calendar just because I knew a lot of fires would, would come up, and I thought that was the right thing to do. But what I found is that it's important to actually block those off and treat those as a meeting so you can actually get tasks done. And yeah. so to be much more intentional about when fires do come up, you are able to quickly prioritize things that can be you know, offloaded to a, a subsequent time. But, yeah. but you do have some blocks protected for tasks, more in-depth work. That might be not exactly what you're talking about with queue It Up, but it does feel like having those blocks of time on my schedule when I open my calendar to know that, okay, at least it's this hour or these two hours I'm going to be able to do something that's more invigorating and more interesting than you know, signing off on administrative approvals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to offer a random example, uh, uh, let's move on to the fourth strategy, aspirational job crafting.
1: So yes, so this strategy differs from the first. If the first is about optimizing the job you're in, this is in some sense taking that much further and thinking about from the jumping off point of the job you're in, what kind of thing do you want to make happen in this role or in this organization? And how might you get there from the job Mm -hmm. that you currently have? So you could imagine, we could go back to the example that I gave of this person who was doing sort of corporate writing and so on. Let's say that her real aspiration was to become, say, the organization's spokesperson or, you know, something like Mm -hmm. this, that is not really her role. And hopefully there's not already an organizational spokesperson because then, you know, that's setting up a competitive dynamic that is a bit sort of outside of what it is we intend. But you could imagine sort of taking opportunities to say, hey, you know, could I perhaps put together a little press release and might this make sense as something that I could be out there, you know, giving interviews to the press about and so on. Again, if, you know, rewriting in some sense, the aim of the corporate writing job as being about communication sort of with the outside world, could see ways in which people could begin to make requests, try to build trust and so on to undertake more and more of a direction, right, Mm -hmm. that speaks to the ultimate aspiration.
0: Yeah, I feel like that concept's It might be very much related in sort of some more intentional professional development and how that relates back to job crafting. And that's another topic we covered on an earlier podcast, which was on succession planning, but it was much broader than just simply figuring out who to hire next. We we touched on topics around professional development and identifying key talents in your organization. Let me just summarize and then move on. I know we're running out of time, but these are really important strategies and we're going to link up some resources so you don't have to furiously take note. We talked about in terms of strategies for optimizing the job you have. Number two, revision the relational landscape of the work. Number three, queuing it up. And number four, the aspirational job crafting. Now, We're going to close soon, but I know that you mentioned to me that you have developed some tools for this that you kindly will be making available for us, at least to get folks started with these strategies. Uh, Can you talk about what those tools are and where folks can find them?
1: So together with Justin Berg and Jane Dutton, both of whom are sort of par- partners in crime on a lot of this research on job crafting, we've developed a tool that essentially walks people through the process of mapping out the current sort of way in which they're engaging in the job that they're currently in to then think about how might they take advantage of opportunities that we help them see sort of through the exercise to bring in more, perhaps drop some sort of aspects of their tasks and relationships that will allow them to have a different experience of the work. How can they better align the task boundary and the relational and cognitive boundary of the job mm-hmm. with their values, strengths, and passions? And the the tool itself is both available at and also described at, and there, there are links to resources and so on, at www.jobcrafting.com. So that can be a helpful jumping off point to learn more about the practice of job crafting and how it may potentially be helpful to try.
0: That is fantastic. I love the idea that there's practical tools available to apply what is obviously many, many years of research and applying it to our day-to-day practice. That's part of the point of uh, this, this podcast, doing that translation from the academic to the practical. So before we close, uh, is there anything that we missed or anything you'd like to touch upon or expand upon?
1: No, I mean, you've done such a great job with the questions that you've asked, so thank you for that. I guess the one thing I would add is, Though, especially for managers out there or those who are sort of looking around the organization at where the job crafters may be, is to just say it's happening everywhere. Even if you think people aren't doing it, they often are, and they're just being very careful about managing uh, yeah. to do the job that's expected of them uh, you know, in the organization. And so this is all around us all the time, and we're hoping to help surface insights about how to make it effective for both individuals and also for the organizations they're a part of.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's such an important point. Part of the reason that immediately resonated with me when I first heard about it is like, wait a second, everybody's doing this. <laughs> I got to find out more. And if listeners want to find out more about your work, we're of course going to post some of the links that we refer to during the episode. But if people are really hungry to learn more, where can they do that?
1: So if they're hungry to learn more about the research, all of the things that I've published, so you know, practice pieces, theoretical and empirical journal articles, book chapters, and so on, on this topic are at my Yale website. So the, the best way to do that would be to just Google uh, Amy Resnesky at Yale, and it will link you to my page where I've posted everything that I've written. So that's both a resource bank, uh, but also a cure for insomnia.
0: That's great. Well, Dr. Amy Rezneski, thank you very much for being our guest today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to today's Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast. We covered a lot of really interesting material today, and I'll just highlight the three aspects of job crafting that I think were very interesting as a perspective to take that you and your employees are probably engaging in, looking at their task boundaries, that meaning adding tasks, removing tasks, looking at the quality and nature of their tasks job crafting through relationship boundaries, which I thought was really interesting, where you expand and limit your interactions with others and perhaps increase or decrease your interdependence respectively. And then this idea of cognitive crafting, which seems to be tied into sort of bigger ideas around how you and your employees are viewing the meaning of their work and what kind of narrative they're crafting around what their work means to them. So this was just, in some ways, just scratching the surface of a very deep and interesting literature but I'm glad that we got to do it. This podcast and this year's President's Challenge is all about exploring credible and actionable ideas and concepts. So the next step is up to you. Download and review the articles and tools and find a way to integrate these ideas into practice in your daily work. Thank you for listening and tune in to other podcasts in this series where we'll be continuing the conversation with leaders and experts.